Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Biedley. Dr. Bernard Heisch, you've written a book dubbed The God Theory, where you explore the interconnections, the potential interconnection and relationship between faith and science. We're curious, uh, could you please give our listeners an idea of how it is that you came to address this question in your professional life? Well, the idea behind this is that there is an intelligence behind the universe, behind the origin of the universe. And this, by the way, has got nothing to do with intelligent design. I'm not talking about anything having to do with evolution. In fact, in my perspective, evolution fits right in beautifully because I think it's something that the intelligence uses to try to evolve life forms. But we'll get into that. Uh, Mm -hmm. The reason that I'm so enthusiastic about this view of things is because there have been a number of discoveries in astrophysics over the last 20 years or so, all of which point to the, uh, the fact that the universe is a pretty remarkable place. Many of the laws and, and constants of nature have values that are, when you put them all together, make a universe that's just right for the, the origin and evolution of life. And we can talk about those. There are nine specific ones. There may be more, but at least there are nine that, I, that I'm aware of that make it a very strong case that the universe is fine-tuned. And that is not really in dispute anymore. You can find lots of mainstream astrophysicists who have written books or articles or talk about the idea that the universe is finely tuned. Now, of course, their explanation for it is going to be very different than mine, but the fact that the universe does have these uh, exceptional properties, when you put them all together, that's not really uh, an issue in dispute. That's something that's well-known in astrophysics, so that's what we're going to talk about. Now, are we talking about properties that not to use a pun, but that evolved over time? Are we talking about properties that changed? Are we talking about an initial state set of properties that have retained a consistency throughout the history of the universe? So far I know, as I know, we're talking about things that were set at the outset, that are sort of the the initial and boundary conditions on the universe. And um, let me just run through them quickly, and we can talk about them in more detail. There's the ratio of electrical to the gravitational force the strength of the nuclear force, the the matter density in the universe, the the, the amount of dark energy and dark matter in the universe, a certain resonance that lets uh, the the carbon atom form in in the um, interiors of stars, otherwise it wouldn't be here, certain properties of the uh, water molecule, the proton to neutron mass ratio, and the the, uh, creation of matter over antimatter in the Big Bang. All these things together, as I said, we can talk about the details at any length you want, Put them all together, and you get a universe in which you have planets arising on whose surfaces, um, presumably at least on one surface and many many others perhaps, uh, life had a chance to evolve, to, to originate and evolve. And that these, these constants of nature and these laws of physics were significantly different. In some cases, only by a few percent, we wouldn't be here. So it's really the initial and boundary conditions on the universe that I'm talking about, not anything that, as far as we know, evolves during the the course of the the lifetime of the universe. Now, would you say, let me try to throw this out here, and maybe this will help focus it too. Are you suggesting then that there is a deliberate grand design for the universe, that all the things that have happened didn't just develop that way over time, but the conditions were preordained or controlled over time to yield these results and these balances? The answer is yes and no. Yes to the, the extent that I think these constants of nature were built into the universe for the purpose of having a life-friendly universe evolve. 
But then bear in mind the, the use of the word evolve. I think that once the universe gets going with these initial and boundary conditions, these laws of nature, that evolution is the, the key property that then lets life originate and, and develop into complex life forms that then, and here's another key aspect of the theory, that then get to host the consciousness that's behind it all. And so I think the ultimate reason for this is that the, the, the infinite intelligence behind the universe wants to experience part of its great, vast potential, and some of that can be experienced only in the universe of physicality. And so we have a physical universe in which life forms originate and evolve, and which then provide the vehicle for this consciousness to experience what it's like to exist physically, to have adventures, to, to be talking on radio programs like this one. And I think that is, that's well, the, the point of it all. Does that mean that we should definitely, I'm maybe being a little facetious here, but let's just do it. Does that mean we could call upon that consciousness to make an appearance and express his, her, or its point of view? Well, I, I think you are. I think I'm doing it right now. I think we all could do that, basically, <laughs> because ultimately, ultimately, I think we... Uh, human beings, and as well as animals and plants, and who knows, maybe even the most inanimate objects, or seemingly inanimate objects, are really powered by by consciousness. And it's that same consciousness that is the one behind the universe. And so, in a sense, if you want to talk to the God, look inside and talk to yourself, because I think we all are manifestations of this great intelligence. We're and part of the universal consciousness, right? I think that's correct. I think okay. everything is, because I think, frankly, I think there is nothing else. I mean, we sometimes have the idea that there might be a God who makes something out of nothing. And, and I don't buy that. I think something out of nothing is a, a wrong way to look at it. I think what you have is a universe created out of the, 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 the substance, the body, the, the essence of this intelligence. Because if this intelligence is great and eternal and, and infinite, then there literally is nothing else. And so the only thing he has to work with, let me say he, even though I mean, you know, he, it, whatever, there's no gender to be associated with this intelligence or both genders, but anyway you want to look at it, there's nothing but, but it. And so it makes something out of part of itself. And one of, that, one of those it things that it made out of part of itself is our universe. And so I think we are not really different. I mean, we, uh, we, have, we have egos, we have seemingly individual identities, but in fact, ultimately, I think we're part of kind of a cosmic game in which this intelligence has dreamed up a universe into which it could... It could uh, insert itself and experience what life is like as a physical creature on planet Earth or someplace in the Andromeda galaxy where your favorite alien civilization lives. Who knows? Now, what you're saying there, Bernard, is that when the, the empiricists, the empirical scientists say uh, consciousness arises from matter, there is the, the, the predisposition, if you would, that, uh, that our consciousness is essentially a byproduct of the physiology of our brains, what you're positing is essentially the opposite, that the brain has arisen from a metaconsciousness, and in that brain there is some fragment of the metaconsciousness which perhaps we can tap into or perhaps uh, has more of an effect on us or influence on us than we would care to admit to. Does that make any sense to you? I think that's right. I am looking at it from the other direction. That it's not, I believe myself that consciousness does not arise from the, the, the wet chemistry in the brain, the neurobiology, the synapses and whatnot. The brain is a vehicle for, for us as human beings living in a body 
but I don't think it's the source of consciousness. I really think it's consciousness that enters into bodies and uses them to have experience, and that indeed, perhaps even you know, every particle in the universe somehow is a tiny, tiny thought form of the infinite intelligence that dreamed all this up. We look at this and we say, well, we live in a world of energy and matter and physical beings, and how did consciousness ever arise? I don't think that's the right way to look at it. I think consciousness created all of this. We have a wonderful physical universe that has laws of nature that we've explored in great detail and we know a lot about it now, but where does it come from? That's the, the unknown in science, and my explanation is that the, the, the origin of the universe and what's in it comes from consciousness and therefore by definition is consciousness. If that implies that even an atom somehow has the most minuscule speck of consciousness behind it, that doesn't bother me. It still behaves like an atom does in the physics laboratory. But its origin is one that uh, traced back to uh, an intelligence who decided that it wanted to experience physicality. Well, let me ask you then, So, is consciousness something that we can quantify and measure? Or is it forever elusive to us? I don't think we can measure it with the, the scientific approach and instruments and, and analysis that we have today because I think it's, it's not really something that emerges from the physical. And so all of our science is is directed towards understanding physical laws and physical processes. And we don't, in science, take seriously the idea that there are other, uh, other realities, other realms, other stuff that isn't part of that physical universe. And I think we'll discover as we go along that, that consciousness is simply going to elude uh, an explanation until we start to look at it from the other direction and assume that, well, maybe consciousness is the primary stuff. Let's look at that. In fact, there are now significant uh, amounts of evidence in quantum mechanics that it's consciousness that creates reality at that level. In fact, it's pretty much an empirical fact that the, the observation, the observation by a conscious observer is necessary to resolve quantum events. We probably have the, um, the, the, the leverage within quantum mechanics to begin to explore consciousness as something that doesn't arise from the physical, but something that in fact is the source of the physical. Well, when you take that stance, I suppose a skeptical question would be, how do you then constrain the definition of reality? If you have a reality where there is an underlying mechanism that creates, in, this, in essence, a dynamic entropy, maybe that's a redundant term, but where, for example, I've, I've read uh, authors and, and thinkers who posit that when you leave a room, that the fact that you are now not taking that room into in through your senses means that that room loses some of its cohesion. That basically, and this I suppose is a bit of a simplification of the the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. But the whole idea that if you are you know a particle will will display different behavior based on whether or not it's being observed. Doesn't that sort of fly in the face of the idea that the universe would be pretty much exactly the same if the Earth one day were annihilated? I know there are some thinkers that have put forward the theory that if, if we weren't here, the universe as we know it wouldn't be here. And that's always hit me as extremely vain. Or am I misunderstanding what some of these thinkers have put forward as an idea of the nature of reality? Well, I think you know, Einstein was asked the question on whether he thought the, uh, the moon would be, would be there if no one was looking at it. And of course, he came down mm -hmm. and decided, of course, the moon would be there. And, and so do I. I. I don't think that 
I think it would be a vanity to assume that if we didn't, as human beings, somehow perceive the Earth, it would, it would disappear in a puff of smoke. After all, the Earth may be being observed by other intelligences, you know, as a point of light in the sky, given their vast telescopes or whatever. Mm-hmm. So uh, I wouldn't go so far as to claim that it's us that keeps the, the, the Earth here, no. But at the, at the quantum level, there's simply no doubt that the, the conscience of the observer plays a very important role and that reality is being, is being shaped there. In fact, there's a, a quantum experiment that we could discuss that elucidates this point, and the um, measurement of the Bell inequality that was made well, some 25 years ago has since been improved upon uh, by a more sophisticated version that, in fact, really points to the notion that it's the conscious of the observer that makes reality happen. This was reported, by the way, in New Scientist magazine last uh, oh, a few months ago, and it's based on an article written in Nature by the, uh, the quantum optics group at the University of Vienna, where they carried out this legged experiment, which is a more sophisticated version of the Bell inequality, and uh, their conclusions were pretty substantial. That they, they ruled out the possibility that there's some kind of a hidden variable, and go right back to the notion that it's consciousness that makes the outcome be what it is. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on hand, and he has a special offer for listeners of the Paracast. We are offering six issues for the price of five. Normally, when you send me a subscription for $19.95, a new subscription, you get five issues. It's our introductory offer. But just for our friends on the Paracast and friends of Gene and Dave, we're going to throw in an extra issue and give you six issues for the price of five. That's six issues for $19.99 just for you. How do we take advantage of this offer? There are three ways to take advantage of it. One is, if you're online, go to www.ufomag.com. Hit subscribe when you come to the PayPal page. Just put in under item, Paracast Offer, 1995, and I will know that you get six issues for the price of five. Or you could send your check or money order to UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California. That's Ray spelled R-E-Y, California, 90295. Put down your name and your address, and on your name and address label, put down Paracast offer. You can also put it on your check for 1995 in your money order. I will know exactly what it means because I'm psychic, and I will credit you with six issues instead of five for that 1995. Or you can call me at 1-888-UFO. 6242, and I will take your name and address and your credit card and send you six issues for the price of five, and that's how you do it. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
Bernard Heisch joins us this week on the PowerCast. He's author of The God Theory. And this is not what you expect it to be, ladies and gentlemen. It's not basically taking a fundamentalist position on God. It's taking, I guess it's reconciling, as we've been saying, science and religion to some degree. Go ahead. Well, Bernard, what, I think it's important that uh, we give words uh, definitions. When you talk about God, let's be clear, based on what I've read in your book, The God Theory, you're not talking about the sort of uh, quintessential Judeo-Christian God with the beard, the God who perhaps has a one-on-one conversation with a human being. Let's just get that out of the way. It's my understanding that you're talking about an underlying intelligence, and you're not giving that intelligence a specific form. Is that correct? That's correct. In fact, if you, um, I take most of my ideas from what's called the perennial philosophy, which is it's kind of an empirical view of spirituality because it's based upon the mystical experiences that people have had throughout the ages. And they're pretty consistent in what they report is that there is an intelligence that is beyond all attributes, that there's an intelligence that is effectively greater than infinity and less than zero at the same time. That is no thing that does not exist in space and time. The space and time are part of the universe that it created. And that this intelligence lives in absolute bliss and eternal rest, et cetera, et cetera, beyond our imagination. In fact, in Kabbalah, they say any attribute that you choose to give this intelligence is wrong, and any attribute that you deny is wrong. So it's just something we, we can't physically, as physical beings, imagine. And yet, for some reason, this intelligence decides to manifest a part of its potential to, do it, to have a creation take place. Not perhaps only one, but but perhaps an infinite number of creations. That's the the, uh, the idea from ancient India, from the writings of ancient India, that there there are an infinite number of creations and we happen to be in one. And why does this, this, this absolutely perfect intelligence beyond space and time decide to have a creation take place? I think the reason is that that intelligence has infinite potential. That potential is a very sterile thing. Being able to do something and doing something are very different. It's like designing a game of Monopoly but never playing it. Reading the rule book maybe but never playing it. So for some reason the, there is a desire to experience that this intelligence has. Okay. Certainly not referring to any kind of a quote classical biblical god who lives in the sky somewhere and looks like a, a cross between, um, oh I don't know, your grandfather and Santa Claus. Um, I'm talking about. You say my grandfather was a tall, bald man with no beard, so (laughs) we assume, therefore, that he was God. (laughs) Yes, right, right. (laughs) I mean, those sorts of ideas make absolutely no sense because if there were such a God and he were were made of matter, well, who made that? You know, there didn't have to be another Mm -hmm. God to to make the matter that made that God. So any kind of a God that's made of matter is a non starter. Any kind of a God that lives in the universe is a non-starter, because if so, who made the universe? There's got to be some other God. There's got to be a, a better God. Well, let's go straight to the head honcho, in other words. So a God cannot reside in the universe, cannot be made of matter, cannot, cannot exist in space and time. So that leaves us with some kind of an intelligence that lives in a realm that is, in a sense, beyond our imagination. What the ancient writings say about this, and I, I allude to ancient writings, but at the same time, the mystical experience, which is the basis of these writings, has gone on throughout history, and there are people today that have mystical experiences in which they go to a level of, of consciousness that unites them with God, and they realize some of these various truths that are discussed in, in what's called the perennial philosophy. It's the 
sort of the summary of the of, of human empirical experience with the divine throughout history. Aldous Huxley wrote about this in the 1940s. He published a book called The um, Perennial Philosophy, which I really would highly recommend to your to your listeners. Anyway, the, the kind of God I'm talking about is outside of space and time, is beyond infinity. In fact, I, I tend to think of this God as being simultaneously greater than infinity and less than zero. Not a creature living in space and time at all, but someone completely outside of time. Someone that is said, or someone, I say one, it's some entity, some being, that is in a perfect state of bliss and eternal rest and eternal perfection, in a realm of the absolute. But for some reason, this, this is God decides to experience part of its potential. And it's that decision that causes a creation to take place. And one of these creations, if there are, if there is more than one, is our universe. And so our universe is a place where the, the potential of this, this eternal infinite being this part of that potential can be actualized, actualized through all the, the life forms that originate in a physical universe like ours. And I think that's the point of it. So this is a very different kind of God than simplistic one that rules in heaven and creates a hell, which, by the way, I also think is an absurd idea. It's a very different, a much more sophisticated metaphysical kind of God, but it has the advantage that this has been reported throughout the ages by people that have had the mystical experience. That this is in fact this is in fact the kind of God that underlies it all, not someone who has a who is a humanoid or who has human-like characteristics and gets irrational and, and angry and, and vengeful. This, this God does not do that. Well, it sounds like that God of the Bible is a God created from projections of the men who wrote the Bible. It's interesting, interesting and, and and a little depressing to see the uh, the continued predominance of the idea that. Uh, the Bible is the quote-unquote word of God, when in fact uh, it's written in human words. Now, when we, we, we talk about, referring to the, the mystical experiences that a number of people have had through the ages, you brought up Aldous Huxley, what role then does the chemistry of the brain play in this? Because certainly there's been a huge amount of, of experimentation on the parts of humans with the chemistry of the planet in order to enhance, some people would say distort, our perceptions of reality. I mean, certainly the traditional hallucinogenic experience with something like ayahuasca or DMT in, in more recent times has created for some people a state where they do report breaking out of their physicality and perhaps even interacting with a universal intelligence that at the time seems clear to them, but then when they come out of the hallucinogenic experience, when the, the chemistry wears off, there is a little bit less retention, a little bit less clarity with, the, with regards to the memory of these experiences. Do you discredit that, or do you feel that there's potentially some value in, in looking into those types of chemically induced mystical experiences as perhaps a means to getting pieces of the puzzle? I do, actually. I want to talk about Aldous Huxley's mescaline experience. But first, to the point of comparing the two, there was another gentleman, a doctor, a medical doctor in the 1960s, who had a, a definitely a, a classical mystical experience, not based on any kind of a, a drug um, effect, but simply something that happened to him mm -hmm. during watching a sunset over the San Francisco Bay. A very profound mystical experience. Well, he decided after that to see whether he could research it further. And uh, this was, I think, 1968 or thereabouts. 
And so for about a dozen, on about a dozen occasions, he took LSD. Compare, to directly compare the two experiences because, and as far as I know, this is the, the only time such a thing has ever been reported in literature. There was an article written about it in the early 1990s by Charles Tart, the, the psychologist. People have had one experience or the other, but, and it's difficult to compare the two because if you're limited to using words to compare things that are beyond words, it raises a certain difficulty. But in his right. case, he had the mystical experience and then followed that up with the drug-induced experience. He found they really weren't quite the same thing, that there was something much more profound, uh, much more life-changing about the mystical experience than the LSD one. To his great regret, because he was hoping that the LSD would, um, would provide uh, access to the same reality that he'd been in before, but it didn't. And this was written up in a journal. I, I'd have to look through my notes on my desk somewhere to find it, but it was written up in a journal article in the early 1990s by Charles Tart. Now, um, Aldous Huxley also had an experience that was relevant, and he wrote about this in a book called The uh, Doors of Perception, a masculine mm-hmm. experience in the 1950s, in which he also felt that he was experiencing a, a reality that was significantly different than the ordinary one. And he chalked this up to there being sort of a crack in the mental filter. And what he proposed was that rather than being the source of knowledge, the source of thought, the, the source of uh, perception, that the brain was the actually a filter, and that the filtering of information from a universal consciousness was the function of the brain. If we were totally in tune with the universal consciousness, one perhaps had even transcended space and time, it would be very hard to get up in the morning and go to work or drive and rush hour traffic. And so we have to restrict our consciousness significantly in order to live in a, in a physical world, in a, in a human society, in, in, a, in a world where people have to do very mundane things. And so he interpreted the, the mescaline as being some way by which his brain cracked really temporarily and let in things that wouldn't ordinarily be there. And I think there's, in fact, uh, some evidence that the same sort of process takes place in the um, experiences of what used to be called idiot savant. Now, uh, more, I, I've forgotten what the, what the current term is. Autism, autistic. Savant I think it would be autistic. Autistic, autistic savant, yeah, that's right. Autistic uh, savants, that's correct, yeah. That's correct, yeah. There are several of them that display the so, most remarkable abilities. There have been some recent stories about autistic savants who had amazing musical abilities and certainly amazing mathematical processing abilities. But getting back to your your, your statement about the brain essentially acting as a filter, it's probably important to note at this point that all of our senses essentially capture a very, very tiny sliver of reality. I mean, in terms of the electromagnetic spectrum and our ears and our eyes, uh, what we actually see is visible light. The part that we can actually see is actually a very, very small sliver, the visible spectrum of light. When you look at it on a chart of the electromagnetic spectrum, it's probably accurate to say, I think it's definitely accurate to say, that the majority of activity that is happening around us is outside, certainly, of our unaided visual perception or unaided aural perception. So, essentially, what we're saying then is that the, the brain is filtering out a lot of the very small sliver that the brain could interpret to begin with, correct? That's correct. But the question is, is the brain filtering out not just physical sensations, as you're correct, it does. I mean, the, the optical spectrum, the spectrum of light visible to the human eye, 
ranges over a factor of two, from around 300 to 600 nanometers, 700 nanometers. And we have beyond that, we have the ultraviolet and X-rays and gamma rays. On the other side, we've got infrared, we've got radio spectrum. So it's a tiny fraction of the of the electromagnetic spectrum that we see. But I think the deeper question is, does our brain not just have access to a limited physical spectrum, but is there also a, a limited spectrum of consciousness that, that is being delimited by the brain, and that if somehow there's a crack in whatever filter the brain provides, that we have access to the same universal consciousness that may be the, the origin of the universe itself, because that's, in fact, what the mystical experience is pointing to. Is it, is it accurate to say, then, that maybe what ends up happening is that human beings are almost like salmon, looking to go back to the source and... Yeah, when we look at the role, for example, of mysticism and how it plays out in the human experience, it would appear that science recently has talked about the notion that there is an actual physiological need for the mystical experience as a, as a form of nourishment for the human soul, basically. Is it that then this consciousness, this underlying intelligence is trying to get us to figure out that we need to get back to it did that what i just said make any sense at all i'll tell you what i'll tell you what does make sense brain tonic the smart antidote to head fog the world's first organic botanical based caffeine free think drink designed for mental focus and clarity tastes great super safe with no caffeine crash. Just great fuel for your cranium. No chemical preservatives, no sugar, no fake anything. Check it out at www.maxsales.com slash tonic. That's spelled with a T-O-N-I-Q. That's www.maxsales.com slash tonic. Again, the spelling T-O-N-I-Q. Check it out today. You know, there used to be only two ways, neighbors, to meet for business, over the phone or in person. Well, now there's a better way. Use GoToMeeting to meet online. With GoToMeeting, everyone sees your computer desktop on their computer screen. So you get the best of both worlds. It's like meeting in person, but without wasting time and money traveling. And you know what the airlines are doing these days. It's a complete mess. And remember this, your conference calls will be more effective. The best part is that you can try GoToMeeting free right now for 30 days. For this special offer, you must visit www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts. That's gotomeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. You're a little On the Paracast, Dr. Bernard Heisch, she's the author of The God Theory. And we're trying to focus here on whether that question David just posed makes any sense to Bernard. What do you think? Well, I think it does say in the perennial philosophy that our ultimate goal, the ultimate goal of humankind is to recognize our true nature. And by true nature, I mean understanding that our true nature is that of God itself, that we are 
physical incarnations, physical manifestations of God. And once we know that fully, that we're then able to return to the source. That you know, going to heaven is not something that involves a physical body or even a, some kind of an, an augmented body going some physical place. Rather, it's realizing that what we are is kind of a concentration of consciousness that's acquired a certain individuality and ego. That individuality and ego, of course, is, is the thing that keeps us blind to the, our true nature, and it's that physical ego and individuality that is the basis of society and the way we interact with each other. But knowing fully that that is, in fact, a construct and that our true nature is simply part, being part of a universal intelligence, that we then have the ability to go back to that and we don't have to come back into the physical realm and, and live more lives as human beings or wherever else we choose to come back, but rather we can simply meld back into the, the consciousness that is the source of, of it all. And then ultimately, of course, the universe itself will be something that goes back into, the, into the, the source of it. It's not something that will last forever. It's a creation that has a beginning, the Big Bang, and that will have an end according to the metaphysical interpretation perhaps even the astrophysical one, although we don't know at this point, we're beginning to think that the universe is going to blow itself apart because of dark energy. But still, ultimately, everything returns to the source, and the source is really the, the basis for the physical world. And in a sense, you could think of the physical world as being almost like a dream, a dream of an infinite intelligence who has concocted a, a certain set of, of congenial laws that work together, the ones I alluded to earlier in the, the discussion, of congenial laws, that let life arise and evolve and provide the, the home for an experience of consciousness in the physical realm. Now, as a scientist, as an astrophysicist, it's interesting to hear a scientist bring up the idea of ego as something that basically is a constraint. How difficult is your life that you're a scientist who I think a lot of people would, might agree with the idea that science is something that in many ways in the current technological expression of it is driven uh, to some degree by ego and by people wanting to be right. Science wants to be right. So how do you reconcile? I mean, it's got to be interesting to be at, at dinner at your house. How do you reconcile <laughs> the, the scientist part of you with this part of you that is asking deeper questions? I mean, how difficult is your life then? Well, <laughs> Should we ask Mrs. Heisch and see what she thinks? <laughs> well, she's a little further out on the metaphysical side than I am. She's a uh -oh. musician, by the way, an opera singer, so she's not at all involved in the science world. But everything that I've said is, is totally consistent with everything I know as a scientist. And I'm not going to claim that, that what I'm saying is proven by science. Certainly it's not, but it's not inconsistent. I mean, I'm starting with the Big Bang. That's fine. We all know the Big Bang is, you know, the, all the evidence points to it. And so the idea that, that a metaphysical Big Bang and the physical Big Bang were the same thing, that, that the Big Bang was the, was the beginning of a creation episode that this intelligence thought into existence, there's no contradiction there. Nor am I claiming that this intelligence micro-engineers life forms the way the, the creationists or the intelligent design people would, would claim. No, I think that evolution is part and parcel of the universe because the, the laws of the universe are conducive to that. And I think this intelligence wants evolution to take place because otherwise it would wind up uh, with cookie-cutter creatures that act uh, in cookie-cutter ways, and what's the point of something like that? I think the experience of novelty, I think sort of making a creation and setting it free to go evolve and do its thing and become the host for consciousness to experience physicality, that's the point of it. 
But you know, you raise, what you raise here, though, Bernard, is that a lot of people want the cookie cutter. <laughs> they want the cookie cutter. They want everybody to be alike. They want everybody to believe the same thing. That's true, and I think that's, that's part of the, the problem of the human situation. I think, in fact, get perhaps into deep water here, I think religion is the source of a huge amount of the world's problems, and it's because religion has taken some of the ideas about God and trivialized them taught us things that are absolutely absurd. I mean, think of the absurdity of, of believing that you're going to go to heaven and be serviced by virgins if you blow people up. That's insane. You know, how do we get to such an insanity in religion that things like that would, would be believed today or the Inquisition three or four hundred years ago where people were burned at the stake for having a mistaken idea, mistaken in the eyes of the churchmen, of what God is. So religion has certainly been misused and is continuing to be misused by mankind, and we have some of the most inane ideas being propagated by religion. So I feel very comfortable with an idea of God that, that as far as I can tell, doesn't run afoul of science. Any place where there's a discrepancy, we basically have an unknown on both sides. Science doesn't know where the Big Bang came from, so I'm free to assume that it came from intelligence, and there's nothing to contradict that. It's not proven by science, but nor is it disproven. So part of what we're talking about here is the idea that perhaps as science tries to understand the physical nature of reality and the laws that constrain how matter interacts with this reality, this is a separate issue. The, the how is a completely different question from the why. If we try to assign meaning... Right, meaning and motivation ends up being a completely different thing. So, the sixty-four trillion dollar question is: Where is the centrist point in this? How do you bridge, Bernard, the realm of the how and the why, or are these two areas that are almost bifurcated that maybe cannot meet because they are two separate sides of one coin, and that if you're in the center? that essentially you don't see either side. How do you reconcile this? I don't think it can be reconciled yet. I mean, I, I think I could reconcile it myself, but I think given the nature of the world we live in, the way scientists practice, the, the mindset of, of most scientists, that anything that smacks of the supernatural is, is primitive superstition and the, the idea that there's something other than the physical universe and its processes, that that's poo-pooed. I think that's, that's a major stumbling block. Now, interestingly... If you go to the heart of modern physics, what do you find? You find string theory. And in string theory, you find mathematicians talking about 11-dimensional or 26-dimensional spaces. And so you're talking about realms that are unseen, realms whose physical laws may be quite different. I think any string theorist would admit that if there are these additional dimensions, there could be other universes out there. These universes being in different dimensions from our own might have very different properties. And so you can ask yourself, well, is that much different than the notion that there may be you know, angels and beings in other realms, it's a matter of terminology. But I think that the, the problem is that science simply doesn't look outside of its domain, and I think that a reconciliation between these two will come when we realize that consciousness is going to require an explanation that's not going to involve emergence of something from the chemistry of the brain. I think that's ultimately what's going to force us, or force scientists, to begin to look towards the the ability of consciousness at times to, to connect with something, to, to provide knowledge via that connection that is simply undeniably real. And we'll have to face that by and by, and that will be the time, I think, when the two come together. But are our brains going to serve us in any way in the interpretation of whatever it is that we're trying to comprehend at that point? Are we 
simply constrained by the physiology of our brains. Well, the people who've had the mystical experiences are not constrained that way. So certainly there, there is the ability for a human consciousness to experience something that's other than physical, demonstrated by thousands of years worth of encounters with that. So there's proof positive that we are not intrinsically limited. Now, most of the time we are. And I don't know what the conditions are that produce the, the, the mystical experience. In fact, it may be something that we, we can't quantify, but it certainly is possible to exist. And it's, it has happened to many people. So that does prove it is possible. Well, okay, mystical experiences has been part and parcel of the subjects we deal with on the Paracast every week. So let's talk about mystical experiences. What kind are you referring to? The kind in which your consciousness goes deep within itself and searches for its source and searches for God and then at some point realizes, oh my goodness, there is no God other than my own consciousness. Yes, I mean, yes and no, there is no God. But yes, there is a God. But I've reached, no, this God is not separate from me. I am simply connecting with a part of myself that I have come into this world and forgotten that I am. That's the experience I'm talking about. And I've got to almost stop at that point because I've never had it. I'm very much a linear thinker. I've been a scientist all my life. And I just haven't had that kind of experience. But well, maybe you have. Maybe you have. Maybe, let me throw this out to you. You said you're married to a singer. That's correct. Okay. For a lot of us who play in the musical world, who are don't think of ourselves necessarily as musicians, but people who are moved by music, when you hit that moment, when you're listening to a piece of music, and all of a sudden there is that beauty that reveals itself. I mean, I have more than a few times in my life, more than a few hundred times in my life, I've been brought to tears by a piece of music. And it's almost as if what's happening in those moments when that, that purity of the music hits you, it's almost as if it's a, it is an, a transcendent experience. It's as if you are outside of your body. And in, in reading interviews with the kinds of musicians I've always respected throughout my life, one thing that seems consistent is that some of the best musicians say that they are not actually the ones playing the music, that they are essentially conduits for this universal creativity and they end up essentially being vessels for it that uh, when Jimi Hendrix talks about when he used to play guitar he would talk about and and relay this idea of that he wasn't playing the guitar that basically he would sort of give himself up to this meta consciousness and that the music would then flow out of him and I think when when you're a musician and you hit that moment I mean probably three times in my life have I been in that moment where I was like playing guitar better than I knew that I could and I recognized in that weird moment that it wasn't me playing. Maybe anybody who has that emotional moment with a piece of music that's not tied to a piece of music evoking childhood memories that then trigger an emotional response, but, but literally this connection to something greater than themselves. I mean, that's the kind of mystical experience we're talking about, right? It is. I think, though, that the one in which you actually connect and, and know you've connected to something that's in a sense, beyond beyond your ego, something that, that transcends your ego and is telling you with absolute certainty, unshakable certainty, that I am really just a manifestation of God and my ego is something that is just a, a temporary suit that I put on. To get to that level, that is probably deeper than the music one you're talking about, although, you know, I don't deny that the piece of music could perhaps take you to that level, but I think with most people who have experienced such a thing, it's really a once-in-a-lifetime experience. It's that deep. 
so does that mean that there's a potential, Bernard, that at the moment that we potentially leave this life, the moment that you die, is it completely unreasonable to think that maybe that's the moment that everybody might have that experience? Good question. You know, of course, obviously, I don't know what happens when you die, but my strong no one suspicion does. is, yeah. my strong suspicion is, and to some extent, this is validated by near-death experiences, that we, our conscience certainly does not disappear. Rather, we leave the body, and our essence goes into a, another realm of some sort, a, a, a non-physical realm, and that we, uh, we, we learn from the lessons of our life. We have either evolved and done things right, or we've made mistakes. We evaluate our life and the, the things that we've done and in, in my view we prepare for another one and we go through a series of lives in which we hopefully try to evolve our consciousness that's sort of analogous to the way that life forms evolve on a planet we try to rise to a better level try to make up for past mistakes perhaps in the case of people that, that do evil to experience karma I guess actually I should say we all experience karma to a greater or lesser degree I think there's a sense of, of balance that has to take place and so uh, I don't think we get all the answers at the end uh, of a life, and I don't think we wind up in a heaven for all eternity. Hey, listeners, did you know that Fate is the oldest and best-known publication on the paranormal? Well, since 1948, Fate has provided their readers with fascinating in-depth articles on subjects like psychics and spiritualists, ghosts and hauntings, UFOs and aliens, as well as readers' true personal mystical experiences. For under $20, you can keep up with all the latest information. To subscribe, call now at one 800 728 2730 or visit Fate's website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. So what are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. On the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, we are talking to Dr. Bernard Heisch. She's the author of The God Theory, reconciling religion and science in a very, very interesting way. And what can we say? David. Is there a possibility then that when we depart this life, when we leave our physical body, and I'm assuming that we do leave. And actually, there was a story I told on the Paracast a while ago about an experience when my mother passed away where I felt that she had given me absolute proof of continuance, physical proof of continuance, not knowing what the nature of that continuance was. But she had essentially shown me that her identity after her death persisted. And she gave me physical evidence of this. So is it is it... Maybe not, I shouldn't say safe to assume, but is it unreasonable to think that perhaps at the moment of our death that we all have the potential for that experience of knowing the greater intelligence? I think that, and I'm just saying what I think, because obviously I don't know for certain. I think that given that we are a part of the consciousness of, of the internal the infinite intelligence that it's almost by definition the case then that we can't just disappear and, and, and die and, and basically uh, I mean our physical body may die but we don't just enter into oblivion 
I think our consciousness can't die. I think it's something that is that is eter- eternal because it's part of an infinite consciousness that gave rise to the universe itself. So it seems to me, and this to some extent is borne out by the near-death experience, it seems to me that we enter into a non-physical realm of some sort where we probably review our life, review the things we've done right and done wrong, and uh, try to learn from what we've experienced. And in all likelihood, we prepare to, to come back into life in another lifetime, try to rise to a better level, to try to undo some of the things that we've done badly, do better the things that we were starting to do well, and try to evolve our consciousness sort of in a parallel way to the, the way life evolves physically on, on the planet. I don't think we are privy to everything all at once. I don't think we're going to some kind of a heaven. We don't go to some, uh, some heavenly campground where all the secrets are known. I think that the way that this works, this coming into physical reality, necessitates that we don't know the, the ins and outs of what's going on while we're living because that would spoil the, spoil the game, spoil the show if we knew everything. <laughs> I don't think we're, we're going to be shown everything when we die, but rather that we will know for certain that our consciousness is not something that's going to disappear because it's still there. But what we do with that consciousness, what we do in you know, future existences that we're, we're liable to have, depends upon what we choose and depends upon the, the karma that we've, uh, we've accrued over the past lifetimes. And uh, it goes on, uh, hopefully with, with our consciousness evolving to a, a level that will uh, give us the choice not to come back if we don't want to, but to return to the, the ultimate source. It's funny that uh, you express it that way, Bernard, because I think I might have said this on the show before. I had this vision in my mind of passing out of this body and meeting my maker, quote-unquote, you know, standing in front of that in, in universal intelligence and asking the question that I think every human thinks they want to ask God or the infinite intelligence, what is this all about? And I have this, this idea in my mind that I get up and I, and I ask the, the, the big glowing light, what is this all about? And the response I get is, what do you think? <laughs> it's just, you know, what? Well, gee, that's what I sent you down there for to get your input. And uh, that's why you're, that's why you went. That's now you're back. Report what you found. And I think perhaps, uh, there might be a spark of truth to that, but this... I think there is. I think there is, because I think that ultimately, I think the point of it is it's not that difficult to comprehend. I think it's that if there is an intelligence that is infinite, eternal, that can do anything, has all possible abilities, I think that that intelligence would decide to implement those potentials, to try to experience what's going on rather than simply know what could be. And knowing what could be and making something happen are two very different things. And so I think the intelligence wants to experience its abilities. And one of the ways to do that, right, I suppose the only way to do that, is to make a creation happen that embodies some of the, some of the possibilities. And our universe happens to be one of those, which has laws that are conducive to letting life forms arise. And that's the way that the intelligence gets to know itself. It knows itself through our experiences. It is us. We are it. We just don't know that while we're alive, because if we did know that fully and completely, be difficult to play the game. Play the okay, game so, so let me let me throw a wrench in, in the works here. Oh no! No, well check it out. You, you might like this. Watch out! Watch out! This this, this is where it gets weird. All right, so uh, the creation is the process of the universal intelligence uh, getting to play itself out through us. So, would you say that the universe is an efficient place, Bernard? An efficient place. Well, you have to find efficient in terms of what. Uh, maximum use of energy. Maximum 
benefit of the use of energy transactions? That's a good question. I, I really don't know. I don't know. Now, I thought you were asking more about efficient in terms of providing oh. an experience. Oh, well, I was going to get to that. See, uh, the, the, the point being that if we assume for a moment that the universe is efficient it, 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 in terms of it, if the creation is proving itself to be useful to the creator in terms of moving towards that experiencing of itself, does the human, and this is, there's no way to know this, this is going to be, a, of course, all of this is about opinions and thoughts, but is the human experience the most efficient way for the universe to experience itself, or perhaps there is a vast variety of life forms throughout this universe so that the universal intelligence experiences every flavor, or maybe the universal intelligence has lots of experiments going on at once with the idea that maybe a couple of them will pan out even if the vast majority don't. Yeah, I tend to think that there probably are other life forms elsewhere that have abilities greater than ours, and so there may be more efficient ways to experience the universe, but maybe efficiency is not the right way to look at it. Maybe it's simply okay. diversity. And we have, at least for this planet, the most complex view of the universe. Obviously, we know more about it than a, than a dog or a cat or a turtle, but uh, I don't think that we should have the ego to think that we're the pinnacle of, of civilization in the universe. I mean, most astronomers... At this point, having discovered hundreds of extrasolar planets, would probably say it's likely there are civilizations elsewhere. It would be very unlikely not to have that. And if that's the case, then we are probably a civilization that came along, well, maybe not late in the game, but certainly in the middle of the game, after some 14 billion years of the universe's existence, there must be other civilizations that had a head start on us. And if so, they're probably way beyond us. So I'm sure, at least I'm guessing, I'm sure that there are other civilizations that have a much more complex view of the universe and that in that sense are helping God to experience the, the reality of his creation in a more complex way than we are. And maybe complexity doesn't matter. Maybe God is just as happy to experience the world, the universe, from the point of view of a turtle as from a human being as from an alien in the Andromeda galaxy. Maybe it doesn't matter. It's all experience. So as the kids would say, it's all good. Yeah, why not? <laughs> well, then let's really throw a monkey wrench in the works. How do we then position the notion of good and evil? I don't even think that's all that hard in principle. It gets rather emotional because, you know, I too feel outraged by the things that happen on this planet. You know, the Saddam Husseins and the Hitlers and, and Al Qaeda and all these crazy things. But on the other hand, you have to realize that to make something happen, to have experience, you have to have opposites. You have to have polarity. You can't experience heat without cold or light without darkness. One doesn't make sense without the other. If you had a universe that was perfectly full of light, same everywhere, you wouldn't see a thing. It'd be like a fog. So to have experience, you have to have the opposites. You can't be a being living in the absolute, as I think the intelligence does, and have an experience. So in order to have the experience, you have to have the opposites. Well, that also means you have to have some amount of not good in addition to the good. Now, I'm thinking of the, our relationship to lower life forms. So you take a shower in the morning. Think of all the bacteria that are washed down the drain that die. You know, the skin cells that are sloughed off that die. You can't live without killing something, literally, in your, in your body. Thousands, sure. millions of cells that die in your body every day, and that's what keeps you alive. That's necessary. So there's a certain amount of, of death and destruction that's necessary for experience and for reality to happen. 
Unfortunately, we also, fortunately and unfortunately, we also have free will. So with human free will plus the necessity of some amount of not good for experience to even take place in the first place, you open the door to pathological excess of not good, which becomes evil. And so I think that evil is a byproduct of the necessity to have opposites to have experience plus the free will that human beings have. Put those two together and you create the condition for pathologies to arise. And I think that the reason that God is not to blame for that is because he basically has set into motion a universe in which experience can happen and doesn't then tweak it, you know, or somehow exert his authority over it locally, but lets it happen in its own way because that's the point of it. If he controlled it all, he wouldn't have a free experience. It would be self-defeating for God to intervene and make everything perfect because he already is perfect. What he wants is experience. And experience can't be perfect, but it can't be experience. So that's uh, my take on evil. There's an old, very good old friend of mine, one of the more talented artists I know, Paul Mavridis, who has as a tagline, it's been a saying of his for years, without lies, there can be no truth. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, I guess that fits right into this. I guess it might also be fair to say that based on the extremities that we see of manifestations of things in the universe, it, it's probably fair to say that the universe and universal intelligence is an extremist. I mean, you know, when you have a planet, when you have a set of planets being destroyed by a star going nova, boy, that's got to be one heck of a rush. Uh, to, to either be that star, to be on those planets, to watch the sun explode. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just, I've always thought that's, boy, talk about the ultimate rush and the ultimate, uh, the ultimate buzz. But given that, you know, what we see, uh, destruction on levels that really the human imagination probably can't really encompass, we have a universe that is both in some ways very tranquil and in other ways very violent. Does that mean that the entire range of events is necessary, or does this universal intelligence do it because it can? Well, you know, I wish I knew the answer to a question like that. I don't. Um, I think that it all comes down to the universe being free to do whatever it can do, given the laws it was born with. I think all the, the thinking went into the laws and the possibilities that emerged from those laws. But then thereafter, I think it was kind of given free reign. Now, I will... One caveat here, and that is that if we really are manifestation of God, then we also, to some small extent, have the same abilities that God does. And God's primary ability is the ability to create, to make a reality. And so we, we too, have a creative potential. And so it may not be totally out of the question that collectively our human consciousness may, may influence our, our future, even the future of inanimate things at some level. You know, so could we ward off a supernova explosion? Now, it just so happens our sun is not the kind of star that's liable to supernova. It's not that massive. But if we were a civilization that lived in, in proximity to a star that could supernova, could we, with our collective conscience, ward that off? Um, I'm, I'm ambivalent about that. I would mm-hmm. say, you know, probably not. On the other hand, if we really are manifestations of God, then we perhaps do have some control over the physical, especially something that's collectively threatening to our entire existence. So, oh, boy. Now, now it's getting fascinating here. So fascinating that we're going to break for the hour, and we'll be back at the other side of the hour with Bernard Heisch, author of The God Theory. 
on the Paracast. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Yeti. Part two with Bernard Heisch, author of The God Theory, and we're reconciling religion with science. Let me start off our two with a thought here. You were talking about, you know, lots of, in one case, coming back and going through life again. Is that like reincarnation that you address there? It is. Okay. Now, science doesn't normally go for reincarnation, so how do you reconcile it as a scientist? Well, I think science just doesn't know anything about it. It's just, it, there's nothing contrary to science about it. We don't really, from a scientific perspective, view ourselves as beings of consciousness. I'm assuming that the physical body operates by the laws of, of physics and medicine and so on, and the way science treats that and analyzes it is perfectly fine. It's just that I'm suggesting there's an element that's not part of the scientific worldview, and that is that we have a consciousness that is part of a universal, infinite consciousness, and that that consciousness cannot die. Therefore, when we uh, die, physically die, when our body dies, the, the consciousness goes elsewhere, and uh, then I think it returns again. So the I see no conflict with science simply because science doesn't even address that issue. It just assumes that the physical is all there is. And you can make that assumption. I think it's a wrong assumption. But you can certainly explore the physical thoroughly and accurately and reliably, and that's what science does. So I don't see that there's any intrinsic reason why what I'm saying should be viewed as contradicting science. It's simply a perspective on something that science doesn't deal with. Well, organized religion in general gets a lot of bad raps for oversimplifying the universe. And is that really what it's all about here, that they took things they didn't understand, phenomena they couldn't explain, and they simply distilled everything into a very basic, dumbed-down fashion. And people are going to scream at me because I use the word dumbed-down, but let's go with it anyway. And that really is the issue. Well, that certainly is one of the problems with religion. It has, it has dumbed-down a perception of what this uh, existence of ours is all about. It's uh, proposed ideas of a god and a heaven and a hell that, in my view, are range from silly to preposterous and that have unfortunately led to people being divided from each other, to being intolerant of other views. Certainly the views contradict each other, so there's an intrinsic problem there. The religions can't all be right because they contradict each other. My religion is better religion. than your religion. Exactly. They foster mm -hmm. hatred, which is the opposite of what a religion should do. So I tend to think the world would be better off if religions disappeared. So I would not say, as you said at the outset of the of part two here, that I'm trying to reconcile science and religion. I'm trying to reconcile science and spirituality. And I think spirituality will ultimately be recognized as a branch of knowledge. Alongside astronomy and chemistry and biology and physics, we're going to have spirituality not as a religious subject, but as one that explores our nature. Because I think we are ultimately spiritual beings living in physical bodies. And so we don't need a religion to tell us that we're spiritual beings. We're recognizing our own nature when we understand that that's what we are. And I think the, the idea of organized religions is one that it's hard to say whether it's been on balance more positive or negative, but it certainly has been extremely negative and continues to be extremely negative in, in some parts of the world. So I'm not a great fan of organized religions. In fact, I tend to think that we'd be better off without them. You know, when the, the John Lennon song, Imagine, talks about a world without religion, my reaction to that years ago was, oh, that's, that's really, that's, that's kind of sad. I wouldn't want to see a world based on atheism. On the other hand, I now see that as a positive thing, not atheism necessarily, 
but the idea of the world without religion because I think religions, because of their dogmatism and also because of the fact that they're, they're human institutions and therefore they're subject to human abuse, they become sources of, of wealth and power and, and, and influence, that religions are not a, a good influence on mankind. But that's a very, very different thing from the existence and nature of God and the spirituality of our own nature. Bernard, what do you think of people who now say that in many ways it almost seems like technology has become the new religion, the religion of science, that there's this idea that technology and science provide all the answers. As someone who is a scientist, what's your response to that statement? Well, there is the, the view known as scientism, and that view uh, says that the, the scientific perspective can be taken to the limit in which you assume that it's all there is, that everything that can possibly be is simply a physical manifestation of, or simply a physical thing, a physical process, a physical entity, and that science studies that, and anything that can't be studied by science, by definition, has to be unreal, has to be a product of the human imagination. That's scientism. Real science says nothing of the sort. Real science investigates the physical world, and that's fine. It does it terrifically well. You know, we think of all the, the validations of science we get every day when the when the car starts and the airplane flies and the cell phone rings in the church service. It's, you know, validation that science is for real. But there's no indication at all that science is all there is. In fact, there are indications that there's more to reality than science. Witness mm -hmm. to experience. So science is terrific. But to assume that it's all there is, that is no longer science, that's scientism. And that's a belief system. That, that kind of faith is every bit as fundamentalist as a faith in taking the Bible literally. Right. And, and I think that uh, Gene and I would agree with you. I certainly know that I, would, I agree with that statement very strongly. I mean, a lot of the things that you're saying inherently make a lot of sense to me. I, I've always been uh, sort of flabbergasted by the intelligent design point of view that somehow evolution runs counter to the idea of a central intelligence. Anybody who's involved in advanced artificial intelligence or the idea of making probes that we can send outside of our solar system to do really useful work uh, realizes that the, the real value in creating advanced technology is in making, for example, a computer that can learn and grow its understanding of its surroundings by learning, because essentially the idea is that you can't program a computer with every single contingency for what it's going to run into. And in fact, as an educator, one of the things I try to do with my students is teach them how to think critically. The, the idea of memorization, and sometimes I look at science and what science, or maybe scientism is what I'm looking at. There's this idea that, okay, rote memorization, if you can... Uh, you know, memorize the laws that somehow now you are going to have a useful skill and what I teach my students is that you need to become critical and creative thinkers and this will help you in basically dealing with problems you A, can't anticipate and B, evolving so uh, the, the idea of evolution when people talk about the theory of evolution I like to think of the reality of evolution that if, if you're not moving forward, then, then what are you doing? So what, what I wanted to ask you before, Bernard, was in your profession, uh, you're an astrophysicist, obviously you deal with other scientists. What are their reactions to your thoughts about the ideas that you put forward in the God theory? I mean, when you have a discussion with a, 
a hardcore scientist. How do you broach these topics with them? Well, to be honest, I don't. When I deal with other <laughs> scientists, I talk about science. And I have gone on the limb by putting these ideas in a book. I don't, I don't advertise the book to my colleagues. I don't hide it, but I don't advertise it. I just don't think mm-hmm. it's particularly productive to go to a scientific conference and talk about this sort of stuff because it's difficult enough to, to deal with scientific issues that are contentious. And um, I, I'm not a confrontational person. I don't want to offend people. Um, so uh, to be honest, I just don't, uh, don't broach the subject, don't really get involved in discussions about this with fellow scientists, unless for some reason you know, it comes up or there's some interest shown. Um, I think, and there probably are more scientists with religious or spiritual beliefs than you might suspect. I think uh, I, I saw recently a, a, a poll that showed that about 40% of scientists believe in some kind of God, which is much higher than I would have thought. You know, it's much higher than the impression you get by going to the conference, for example. But um, overall, I, I try not to bring it up. Okay, so as an astrophysicist, tell us about what observations you had that moved you towards this idea of there being a universal intelligence. What was it that you saw, perhaps, in the work you were doing on the part of astrophysics that nudged you in this direction? Well, I've got to say, you know, by way of um, sort of... Uh, putting the, the thing in context, truthful context, uh, that mm-hmm. I grew up wanting to be a Catholic priest. So I grew right. up in a very strict Catholic environment and had the intention of becoming a priest astronomer. And by the way, that's not impossible. There are a number of professional astronomers and astrophysicists who are priests. I think they're the ones I know are all Jesuits. And the Vatican even has an observatory. The Vatican has a very modern observatory in southern Arizona on Mount Graham right. Right across from Kitbeep. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the Vatican is pretty much, you know, in the, in the 21st century as far as astrophysical research is concerned. Not in terms of some of the other aspects of Catholicism, I might add, <laughs> but in terms of astrophysical research, they're, you know, they're pretty respectable. That reminds um, me, of course, about the fact that the Vatican's chief astronomer was quoted, what, just a few weeks ago, suggesting that, of course, there are other intelligences around the universe. We're not the only creatures of God, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, in fact, I have a copy that on my desk here. Someone sent that to me, and I thought it was kind of funny because it seems so obvious. I mean, who would worry about whether or not it's compatible with, with Catholic belief that there are aliens in the universe? I mean, it's never occurred to me that there would be any kind of a conflict there, and people would worry about that or the church's position on it. But anyway, it's good, good that they accept that notion, put it that way. So getting back to my own story, I, I grew up with this Catholic background, and I went actually to a seminary when I was 18 years old, to a seminary run by ben- Benedictine monks in a monastery in southern Indiana. It was run for the, uh, it was training priests for the Archdiocese of Indianapolis. But I left that after my freshman year of college because I really didn't want to, I wanted to get married, have kids, you know, and uh, the idea of a celibate life. And some of the, the Catholic dogmas bothered me, such as birth control and abortion. Not abortion, but the birth control and divorce. So I got away from that and pretty much was an agnostic for many years with an interest in things that are at the forefront of both science and spirituality. Mm-hmm. And I think it was the, the the fact that there now are so many indications that our universe is not just accidental, that there are these, these properties of the universe that when you combine them uh, make the universe a conducive place to life. That's kind of what kicked me over the edge to, to think, well, you know, the evidence really is pointing more towards the reality of an intelligence behind the universe than simply assuming that we're 
just lucky to live where we are, and it's all a matter of chance and randomness. So I would say that the, the coincidences and the laws of physics that we've discovered have played a large role in this. And then as I looked more deeply into it and discovered some of the perennial philosophy, the sort of the esoteric aspects of the world's religions as opposed to the the exoteric ones where they all disagree with each other and, and if I'm going to put it bluntly, spout nonsense, that got me to thinking. And uh, writing the book certainly had a, a hand in that because the way you really know what you think is to have to write it down and put it, you know, put it on paper. So writing the oh, book boy. clarified a lot of my thoughts. In reading the book, one of the things, and I, and I made little notes on the pages where you do it, we're known on being, we're, we're, uh, the Paracast has somewhat of a reputation of being uh, demanding with our guests. I guess some people would say we're hard on our guests. I like to think we're just interested in having a rational conversation. There are a couple of places in the book where you you do something that really surprised me, and uh, I'm just going to read uh, read one of these things to you. Where you say, for example, on page 96, there's a there's a couple of sentences. Paradoxes abound, but they are all resolved by interlinking space and time in a four dimensional geometry. Take my word for it. So <laughs> take my word for it. Part. Um, <laughs> Yes, you did. <laughs> In fact, there are a few other places where where you did this as well. You said there's another one where you said, believe me. And, and it surprised me because one of the things that really uh, strikes me ab about your book and about your, your, your thoughts in general, and it's something that I really closely relate to, is that um, I I've said on this show many, many times that I have very little interest in belief. Uh, because people can believe anything they want, and belief does not require any kind of proof. Belief is something that you can do just because you want to. And and I'm not saying that uh, that you're guilty of this, but I do find in a couple places of the book that was one of them. He said, "Take my word for it." And then there's another one where you say, "Believe me." But hmm. uh, yeah, I, I I want to ask you about that because it, it seems that yeah, I mean, what's clear in in the book is that. You don't pretend to have definitive answers. You say, okay, these are thoughts I've had about this. Here's why I've had these thoughts. You sort of say, make of it what you will. And, and we appreciate yeah. that because that, that is something that I think we are, uh, we are very concerned about people who make definitive statements. Uh, Bernard, you do not make definitive statements. You make a point. You support it pretty well. And, and that's something... That, that we, we deeply appreciate. It's one of the reasons we were very uh, uh, thrilled that you'd come on the show and talk with us. In the book, you bring up zero-point energy. And I'd like you now to discuss that a little bit with us and put this in context with the corroboration of a universal intelligence. T tell our listeners a little bit about your work regarding the zero-point field, zero-point energy field, and how you think this ties into this topic. That's, a, that's probably the stickiest thing to talk about because there is so much misperception out there about zero-point energy and zero-point field. If you get online, you'll find all sorts of claims of gadgets oh, and, yeah. and metaphysical uh, interpretations of this being God and so on. So let me just preface it by saying that, that my work was actually funded by NASA and by Lockheed Martin, so I had contracts from uh, you know respectable research organizations to, to do the investigations mm -hmm. I did. And the papers we published are published in, you know, mainstream journals such as Physical Review and Annalen de Physique and so on. Annalen de Physique, by the way, was, that was a journal where Einstein published his papers, so I'm kind of proud of that. But, um, 
the zero-point field, as I've published on it, was strictly a, a, a physical analysis. Uh, the the zero-point field, let's back up and say what it is physically in its simplest form. Let's take the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. If you take a grandfather clock and don't wind it up, eventually the pendulum will come to rest because of friction. But if that grandfather clock were a quantum device, if it were, if it were that small, it would be subject to the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. And that would say you can't ever take the last little bit of energy out of anything. And that pendulum would keep moving forever because of quantum laws that, that basically forbid it to come to rest. Now, when you, imply, when you apply that same logic to light, or more generally a radiation field, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle also says you can't take the last little bit of light away from any direction in which that light might flow, or any frequency, or either polarization state. And so there's a background sea of quantum light, quantum radiation, that fills the universe because of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. So if that's the case, then what we discovered was that it may be possible for that underlying sea of radiation to interact with matter in such a way as to give it the property of mass. This is getting rather technical, but the idea is that the mass may not be something that gets attributed to a Higgs field, which is what physicists think must be the basis of mass and which they're searching for, especially given the, the new collider that's coming online this month in, in Europe at CERN. We've, we've published papers that show that you could actually derive Newton's equation of motion, his F equals MA equation of motion, from the interactions of matter with the zero-point field. And that's really exciting because it's a whole new way of looking at mass and even suggests you might be able to control mass. Might even be able to somehow control gravity if that's the case. That was very controversial. As I said, even though it's very controversial, we got it published in top-notch journals and had funding from NASA and Lockheed Martin to do so. And it's that aspect of the zero-point field that really interests me because that's physics and technology. Hi, this is Timothy Green Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO, reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer for the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publications for free? Conspiracy Journal and Bizarre Bizarre sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MRUFO at WebTV.net. And we'll send you two of the most exciting publications. But we do need your actual address because these are physical publications. And you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field, as well as up-to-date information on the latest book and videos, and it's all for free. Or drop us a line, Mr. UFO at webtv.net. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the podcast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene in data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. But my hand says hand, that on the Paracast, on the, on the other hand, my hand is here and the other hand is there. And we have Bernard Heisch, the author of The God Theory. And we're talking about physics, zero-point gravity. And on the other hand... Yes. Go ahead. Tell me. Oh, 
I thought you were going to take one of these breaks. No, I just um, on, on the other hand, in the metaphysical uh, experience, there is the, the, the sense that the universe in the Big Bang was a, a place, was a, an instantiation of where energy, the sort of energy from the creator flowed into this space-time that was being created, sort of inflated the space-time with its energy. And the question is, is there any possibility of a connection between a zero-point field that, that is defined in a purely physical electromagnetic way in the papers that I've written and papers other scientists have written, any connection between that just physical zero-point field, that electromagnetic zero-point field, and this sea of energy, this, this energy that brought into being the entire universe at the moment of the Big Bang that's connected somehow to the intelligence behind the universe. That's where things get very sticky, because that way you open up the possibility of all sorts of speculation. And people said, well, uh, this is you know universal consciousness that's manifesting here, or somehow this is God manifesting. And that makes me uncomfortable, because it makes it difficult for me to publish papers in the zero-point field that talk about strictly the physics, which is controversial enough, without it being ridiculed, because people are talking about zero-point field in pretty much and sometimes I would say irresponsible ways. Irresponsible in the sense that they don't know what they're saying, not that they're malicious, but in the sense that you have people talking about it that, that couldn't, couldn't define the zero-point field mathematically if they had to. So it's, a, it's a, an interesting but also a very, um, a very dangerous subject for me to talk about because of the, the controversies it engenders. Does the universe have a built-in mechanism that stops a civilization from evolving technologically? If they haven't reached an equivalent level of spiritual evolution, do you think maybe that's one of the dilemmas that the human species is facing currently? Well, <laughs> that's quite the question. I wouldn't have any way of knowing that. I don't know, because uh, if the universe is, is the place where God uh, manifests his experience, his, uh, where God experiences his potential, then I suppose there might be no limit on that potential. On the other hand, uh, there's always another hand, isn't there? Oh, yeah. With the universe taken over by, taken over by the Klingons. Uh, I don't know how, how much more to answer that question because I honestly don't know, and no one does. No. Sometimes opinions are more useful than answers, um, definitive answers, because maybe the nature of reality is, is such that yeah, it's a derivative. You never quite get there, but you're always trying to get closer and closer. Yeah, I think there are laws that sort of keep uh, keep checks and balances in place, because if there are other realms beyond the physical, as curiously both the string theory physicists and the the people that believe in spiritual realities, as they both would claim, then there is the possibility of you know some greater intelligence, some more ruthless intelligence overrunning some other but I think there may well be a hierarchy in place that you know keeps keeps some semblance of order, keeps things uh, from being totally dominated by one level of intelligence over another. That's that's pretty much speculation. I just I think that's possible, but clearly I don't know. I don't know that. If there is a God, can God change the rules while the game is under progress? While the game while the game is oh, playing sure. out, can so so you think that's a possibility? Oh, I think so. I think I think God is omniscient and omnipotent, so I think he could in a second, you know, stop the whole game. But I don't see any reason why he would do that, but I think he could. I think if he, if he couldn't, then you would have put some limit on God. I think whatever, 
whatever God does in this universe is a limit he puts on himself. I mean, he could interfere. He could, you know, make our sun blow up if he wanted to, even though it's not the right mass to become a supernova. But I think that that would destroy his, uh, his experience. So I think that whatever limits there are on God are ones he imposes on himself, and therefore, by definition, are ones that he could, he could supersede if he wanted to. You're assuming, then, that the laws of the universe have been immutable, that they have not changed, that whatever it is, that's the way it's been since the dawn right. of time. Yeah, I think so. I think that the idea was that the universe is set up to accomplish something and was set up in a way that would allow it to do that. But how it did that, especially how the details of it worked out, especially with regard to evolution, that was left open. That was left for the universe to, to figure out for itself. And I think that's one of the reasons that evolution is a key aspect of this. I think evolution is necessary for the, the plan of the universe to be fulfilled. So I don't see any conflict between evolution and this view of God. In fact, I think this view of God requires evolution for God's plan to, to be enacted properly. So Bernard, if, if I came to you and said, okay, you're a scientist and you have some thoughts, we won't even at the moment call them theories, even though the name of your book is The God Theory, but let's say you have some... Yeah, go ahead. And the website is www.thegodtheory.com. Thegodtheory.com, absolutely. I was, ho I was glad you, you brought that up. And you mentioned that. Um, so as a scientist, how do you set up an experiment to get closer to a proof? Is it possible? Well, as I said earlier in the program, I think it's coming to a realization that our consciousness is not just something that is generated by chemical and other activity in the brain. That's going to be, I think, the gateway to exploring the uh, so the world beyond current physics and there may be connections between doing that and doing things that are purely uh, laboratory kind of procedures for example you mentioned uh, the experiences with drugs I think that there are some mm -hmm. drugs that open the, the gates of perception such as DMT probably LSD I've neither, never tried any of those myself and wouldn't want to but from what I've read they certainly seem to open the gates to something that has been described as very alien and also very real so it may be possible via a combination of our understanding of our or study of our own consciousness, perhaps with the use of the, the proper clinical use of drugs like that, to uh, come to a, a different paradigm. It's my best view on it. Well, see, the reason I ask you that is that you've taken a bold step in trying to create a bridge between two realms that have been for the most part mutually exclusive that don't really want to acknowledge each other. And uh, we applaud you for doing that. The, the question comes how to move this forward. And so if it were your decision, or, or if you were trying to design a plan to move this forward, does it make sense to start this plan from the spiritual point of view moving towards the scientific? Do we start with the scientific and try to encompass the spiritual? What is the method that people should use, even in their own lives, to try to reconcile say, these things? I would say the answer for the what to do in your own lives is simpler than the, the, the broader one of what to do for the world at large because I think okay. for your own lives, it's, uh, the answer is, is, is evident that it's looking at what makes sense in terms of your belief about God and about your own nature. Look deeply at what you've been taught by whatever religion you belong to or have been exposed to and ask yourself, does this make sense? For example, 
a heaven that you go to as kind of a glorified human being, living among glorified saints and angels and whatnot, going to a place like that forever. Think about that for a second. Is that really heavenly? Anything that goes on forever is liable to become a real horror because whatever happens will happen <laughs> over and over again. That kind of heaven would be the, the most opposite thing from heaven you can imagine ultimately. So ask uh, yourself, uh, what is to... heaven that my church teaches yeah. make any sense? I have to absolutely interject because Gene is usually the one that brings up movies and TV shows, and and that's his specialty. But but I have to do it now because there's this wonderful episode of the Twilight Zone, the original Twilight Zone, uh, Rod Serling's Twilight Zone, where there's a guy who dies and. Uh, he's surrounded by these beautiful women. There's this guy who says, "Oh yeah, you know, you're dead now." And here are all these beautiful women. And look, you've got this. Uh, you've, you, you like to gamble? Oh, look, you look there. Here's a casino where you you gamble and you never lose. And you're always a center of attention. And this guy's doing this. And it gets to the point where he just he just gets insane because the women won't leave him alone. He never loses. He's he wins, so he gets completely bored with the whole thing. And at some point, he says to the guy, you know, you never told me that, that heaven would be this boring. And the guy looks at him and says, who told you this was heaven? It was ah. perfect. It was like, that was, yeah, it was it, that right. exact idea. Yeah, yeah. The, the issue of contrasts ends up being how, how you define things. And maybe that's, that is the role of, of good versus evil. But then again, we always have this problem of the point of view. Uh, one of the things that you write about in the God theory is that from the point of view of a beam of light, time and distance have no meaning. And I know at a physical level, there is theory that supports that. But just and for the sake of our listeners, who I'm guessing most of them aren't physicists, though I suspect there are a few physicists out there. Um, if, you're, if you're a beam of light and you're coming out of the Andromeda galaxy and you're moving towards the Milky Way galaxy, at that point, that light takes two million years to get from A to B. Now, I think people might have a hard time understanding then from the point of view of that beam of light that there's no distance. But is that really true? If we, if we try to you know, project into that construct, what we find is that you're at the, t you're at the, the leading edge of this beam of light, and it's going to take you two million years to get from where you are to where that galaxy over there is. So how do you explain the idea? And, and again, I'm, I'm just throwing this out there for the benefit of the listeners, that from the point of view of the light, there is no time, there is no distance. At an intuitive level, that, that doesn't make sense. Brain Tonic, the smart antidote to head fog, the world's first organic botanical-based caffeine-free think drink, designed for mental focus and clarity. Tastes great, super safe, with no caffeine crash. Just great fuel for your cranium. No chemical preservatives, no sugar, no fake anything. Check it out at www.maxsales.com slash tonic. That's spelled with a T-O-N-I-Q. That's www.maxsales.com slash tonic. Again, the spelling T-O-N-I-Q. Check it out today. Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space 
and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world, a woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. Attack! Attack! Of the Rockwell. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes, The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans the galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack, Attack of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack, Attack. Of the Rockwell, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You never know what's going to happen next. You know, by the way, David, yeah. from the point of view of this show, we're talking to Bernard Heisch, the author of The God Theory, reconciling science and religion and otherwise. So tell us about the light. Show me the light, Dr. Heisch. The time dilation or length contraction of light is something that comes right out of special relativity. So we know from Einstein's relativity that a beam of light will experience infinite time dilation so that it experiences basically no time and no space either because the length is is, uh, completely contracted at that speed, at the speed of light. So that means that that, let's assume there's a a photon of light that's emitted from, from some star in the Andromeda galaxy. And from our perspective, it's perfectly logical, reasonable, and, and correct to say that that photon of light is traveling through space for two million years before it strikes a detector in some telescope in, or in our human eye, and there it's destroyed and detected. From its own perspective, though, it jumps instantaneously from where it's emitted to where it's absorbed in, in not even a fraction of a second. It's instantaneous because it experiences no time, to, experiences no length and no time. So you can ask yourself the question, well, if that light beam, or that photon of light, had no place to land, could it have left? And that's actually a profound and even a scientific question because the photon of light has to be absorbed somewhere, and since it's traveling at such a speed that it experiences no time, then it essentially, in its own reference frame, knows where it's it going. Where it's yeah. going. And if it has no place right. to go, can it leave? That is actually a scientific question and one that might be measurable because there was an experiment I read about a number of years ago in which it was proposed to uh, look at the, the, um, kind of turn the problem around and transmit a laser beam into space and point it in different directions in in space and look at the the flow of energy that you get uh, from the beam at a certain level of setting that might reflect that the laser beam knew it had no place to go in this part of the sky versus knowing it's going to land someplace in some planet or some star or some interstellar cloud elsewhere, you might actually be able to measure if you could uh, direct a, 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 a very narrow laser beam someplace where it just might happen, miss everything before it encounters the Hubble horizon versus one that's going to land somewhere maybe a million years from now. But that is very suggestive to me of the, the reference frame of God, which is beyond space and time. There's something very suggestive about the connection between no space no time, light, and God. And I don't know what it is, but I can just say there's something, there's something deep and profound here that I, I wish I understood. Well, in the book, what you say, and I'll quote you, you, you write, I argue that light propagation may actually create space and time, 
The zero-point field inertial hypothesis implies that the most fundamental property of matter, namely mass, is also created by light. Now, that's really interesting because even in things like the near-death experience, we hear about you know, the one, one of the absolute commonalities is this idea that you are moving towards a light. And, and this, is, this is something that's a common element. And so here you're, you're basically saying the same thing. You're saying that this, this, this light somehow is almost the arbiter of reality. It, 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 it's almost as if the light is the, is the something to the otherwise nothingness. And, and this is a theme yeah. that I think we see this reverberating, this theme, throughout discussions of spirituality. Uh, one of the things that um, in New Age circles, there's this idea, not just New Age circles, I shouldn't say that because it goes deeper than that, that you protect yourself, you protect your soul by surrounding it with light. And that this light somehow imbues you with the ability to transcend. It, it's kind of fascinating uh, because when I uh, years ago I wrote about computer technology, looking with a futurist point of view, and one of the interesting thresholds we've hit. Now to take it just like completely in technological uh, direction, one of the interesting problems we've had with computing technology is that essentially we're dealing with um, little pathways by, through which we're shooting electrons, and all of electronics is based on this idea. And the bottlenecks that we have seen in computer technology have largely been related to the fact that we're dealing with electronic circuits and there has been a large amount of very high-end, very esoteric and uh, exotic research on optical processing where instead of, uh, instead of uh, electronic circuits we have essentially light pulse circuits. And instead of electronic memory we have holographic memory and holographic memory that is not accessed the way that electronic memory is. It's accessed essentially with lasers, with light. And that what you end up having is a, a orders of magnitude faster uh, uh, bus speeds, orders of magnitude faster uh, throughput speeds. And also, in the case of uh, the holographic memory core, instead of the serial access approach that we have with the, the typical von Neumann uh, architecture of computers, what we have is a, a holographic memory core which can have multiple address points, multiple mm -hmm. bits being accessed and written to simultaneously. You have parallelism versus uh, serial computing. And I know that for a lot of our listeners, they're probably going, what the hell is he talking about? But even in technology, there is this reality that technologies that are moving towards next generation are moving into the realm of light processing versus electronic processing. And, and there are there obviously is overlap between the two, but it seems like this is even borne out in terms of our technological evolution. Is there a clue there for perhaps how we should proceed spiritually mm -hmm. as a species? Well, you know, you think? I, think that, I think there are clues all over the place having to do with light. I just I'm not smart enough to put them all together and know what they mean, but there are clues and what you've alluded to is a clue. What I'm alluding to is a clue. My, my clue has to do with the notion that God is beyond space and time. And interestingly, light is beyond space and time, even though light exists within space and time, and itself is beyond space and time. Its reference frame has no space and time. So in a sense, God's reference frame and the light reference frame are both beyond space and time, so there must be, not must be, there may be some commonality there. 
they're just uh, they're just clues that are very tantalizing, and yet, you know, I don't know what conclusion to draw from them other than if we keep looking in this direction in both a, uh, a laboratory sense, uh, physical investigations, and an open-minded and metaphysical uh, perspective, we may learn something about the relationship between space, time, God, light, and our own consciousness. But we also, have, of course, have the danger of just making glib assumptions and drawing glib connections between things that really shouldn't be shouldn't be connected. So it's uh, it's a little, bit, a little bit fraught with peril, but at the same time, there's gosh, there's something profound here. So, so what are the disciplinary mechanisms that we put in place? to avoid glib connections and instead create meaningful connections. And along those same lines, if someone came to you and said, uh, Dr. Heisch, we'd like you to put together a team to further the study of the theory that you put forward in the God theory, what, what would be your approach to putting together a team? Who, who would be on a team like that? What would be the categories of people that would be on a team that would take the work that you've put forward in the God theory and try to move it to the next level of corroboration if that's possible? Well, I guess I would take the, the safe route and look at the, the physics of the zero-point field. And, of course, I'd like to have some scientists that are opposed to that uh, approach. And if I had the resources to hire them to put their, put their uh, objections on hold for a while and open-mindedly do some analysis and investigation and see whether we're on the right track, because if it could be shown, for example, that the, that the property of mass originates not from some new field, the Higgs field, but rather from the zero-point field, which is a very fundamental field of radiation that the quantum laws seem to uh, bring into existence, then uh, that opens the possibility of a deeper connection between the stability of matter, not just the stability, but the existence of matter and its stability, and a form of quantum light that, that underlies the entire universe, that would be that would be a profound bit of information to have. So I would I guess I would start there if I had to assemble a scientific team. I would have to um, you know I have to confer, I know with my fellow wizards <laughs> on things more esoteric to to uh, come up with a, any kind of reasonable research program on consciousness. I mean there are people that that you know I spent a long have spent career studying this sort of thing not just from a neurological point of view, neurophysical point of view, but even from a paranormal point of view. I mean, some of the people I know, like Russell Targ and Hal Putoff and Ed May and some of the other favorite uh, suspects from the, uh, the parapsychology world, you know, ha I think have some important insights and information that they could bring to bear on this. But it would take uh, you know, quite a bit of, of thinking and um, you know, brainstorming to come up with something that might have a chance of taking us to a... Uh, a result that would be scientifically provable at best, and even if not scientifically provable, at least very, very plausible. Well, you know, when you look at this, and we're seeing that you also are interested in the world of the paranormal. So let me throw out this one. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730. 
2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. up on the final section of the show we're talking to Bernard Heisch the author of the God theory and we've only scratched the surface so let's talk about the surface of this we have the Vatican saying okay there are life forms out there intelligent life forms God's creatures you accept that there are paranormal events as you've alluded to throughout the show so far what about UFOs I didn't really get into that, but we don't have really to don't be know. extensive about it. You could just, you know, cover it in the way that you feel appropriate. Well, like a, a few years ago, a couple of colleagues of mine, Hal Putoff, uh, Jim Deardorff, Bruce McAbee, we decided we would try to break into the mainstream literature with a paper that at least alluded to, to the UFO situation. And so we wrote a paper in which we took the position that Fermi's paradox, which is the "where are they" paradox, meaning, look, if there are other civilizations in the universe. That implies, unless we're very special, that some of them are advanced way beyond us. Therefore, why are they not here? That's Fermi's paradox. It's a paradox he kind of quipped over lunch back in 1950 one day at Los Alamos. So we took that and he said, well, let's look at this in the light of the, the physics of today rather than 1950. And we found that, indeed, there are lots more possibilities for getting from here to there than there were back then. There are wormholes, there are the possibilities, uh, possibilities of other dimensions that come out of string theory, there are the possibilities of trying to engineer the vacuum, uh, several others that we've mentioned in the paper. And so we, we took this as a uh, scientific challenge to say, look, why is it that given the fact that Fermi's paradox looks more, um, more like more of a paradox today than ever, given the fact that we can figure out ways to get from here to there, why is science simply ignoring even the, the very good reports that have come in of UFOs over the last uh, several decades. Why is the topic taboo? Isn't science making a mistake to uh, ignore even the very best reports? Because, you know, our best modern astrophysics theory suggests we ought to be being visited. Therefore, why are we throwing away the opportunity to look at any possible evidence? And we submitted this to, to uh, Science Magazine, and they turned us down. It's minutes in Nature, and they turned us down. And we got it published in the Journal of the British Interplanetary Society, which is a small journal, but it was a respectable scientific journal. And so we can say we've got the, the first paper published in a mainstream journal on this topic in, in decades. But it's amazing how resistant. We, it was a very innocuous paper in the sense that we weren't, we weren't arguing for you know, any species of alien visitation or anything like that, rather simply saying that the chances of visitation look better now than they did 50 years ago. Therefore, why is science refusing to even look, even look at a high-quality report if you're discovering who knows what? So that was our attempt to try to open the discussion. Then, you know, we succeeded a little bit. We couldn't get it in the, uh, in the top-notch journals. And by the way, I've published before in Science and Nature on, on more mainstream matters, so it's not as if I didn't know how to do it. I've done it. 
Mm-hmm. By the way, we, we appreciate your answering that question. I know when I originally contacted you to come on the show, it was because I had found your website, and I'm going to I'm going to mention on the air now. I hope you don't mind. UFOSkeptic.org. It is a source of some very good information. And in fact, I believe the uh, PDF of that article is on your website. Though I think that I actually had a problem downloading it, if I remember correctly. So you, you oh, might want to look into that. Yeah, yeah, I think I had a problem uh, uh, just doing the download. It, it didn't happen because I was really anxious to read it. Actually, uh, uh, Dr. Maccabee is, is a friend of the show. He's been on the show, and we've had extensive discussions with him. Actually, Putoff, I think, we has, has not responded to our request to come on the show. But I know that when I originally contacted you, you said to me, well, everything I've, I want to say about the UFO topics on my website, go read it there. I'd love to come on and talk about my, my book, The God Theory, and then looking over The God Theory and after you... Uh, were gracious enough to have it sent to us, I realized that this actually was very much along the lines of the topics that we have on the Paracast, because what you had here was really not a vertical discussion, but the meta-topic, which um, is something that we appreciate and, and we look for, you know, how to try to elevate the level of the discussion by maybe stepping back from the you know, sort of the, the typical viewpoints of these things and trying to be more expansive. And, and we applaud you, Bernard, in your, in your attempt to do this with the God theory. Um, obviously, I'm saying obviously because I'm, I'm guessing that uh, with a book like this, you'll end up sort of in the, in the position that we've ended up with on the Paracast, where trying to have a skeptical, rational discussion about a maybe a, a, a not very straightforward topic usually makes you enemies on both sides of the fence. I can imagine fundamentalist Christians probably not liking your book a lot. And maybe I'm wrong. Hopefully I'm wrong about that. I'd like to think that maybe with this book you can create a balanced discussion that has people from both sides of the fence not necessarily being converted in any way, but if nothing else acknowledging the limits of what we do know and the vast expanse of what we don't know. And and in that sense, uh, I want to say to you on the air that I think that uh, the God Theory does a fantastic job of, of doing just that, of basically trying to create a more rational discussion of these topics because one of the things that we try to do on the Paracast is to, 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 to break the mold a little bit and try to break out of the constraints that have made it difficult for people to talk about topics like this in a way that maybe moves our understanding forward instead of trying to you know, sort of protect a pet theory. I, I don't get the sense, Bernard, that with this book you are protecting any pet theories of yours. I think what you're doing here is you're inviting people to have a conversation and to open their minds, and not so much that their brains will fall out. So we, we want to thank you for that. We think that, uh, at least I think that, uh, you're doing something very important here, and, and I hope you get the recognition for it that you deserve. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that has been my motivation. I did, really did write this as a, what I regard as a public service to try to, to get beyond the, uh, the dogmatism you see on different sides of the, of the religious perspective. And it really was something I did not for the sake of benefiting my career, which it certainly hasn't. I hope it hasn't hurt it too much, but it certainly hasn't helped yeah. any. I did it yeah. because I thought mankind needed to take it, as you say, step back and look at things and see, and ask ourselves, is, does this make sense or is there a better way to look at things? Well, maybe being a little more humble. You know, when science makes definitive statements about the nature of reality, I always have this reaction where I laugh. 
And I always think to myself, man, the nature of reality is probably so much weirder than anything you could imagine that if you were con confronted with it, you just wouldn't believe it. And uh, I got to use the word uh, science and belief in, in the same thought there. Uh, I like that. I always yeah. like trying to melt those two words together. And, 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 and because uh, in some ways, conflict, when we have these conflicting ideas, in some ways, uh, when ideas have conflicts, maybe we can get something more useful out of that than we would than it when people have conflicts. When people have conflicts, usually someone gets hurt. And uh, the winner ends up being someone who won at the expense of a whole lot of people getting hurt. And when ideas conflict, and when you, you put ideas up for battle, well, maybe you can actually move something forward without anybody suffering physical damage. Yeah. <laughs> Except when I have a, a conflict of ideas with Gene, I actually virtually beat him up with a baseball bat. <laughs> and, of course, I show my he, favorite uh, karate chop, so it... Works yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. See. <laughs> yeah. I studied karate myself, actually, when I was younger. Well, as I said, uh, Bernard, it's got to be interesting having dinner at your house. That's all <laughs> I can say. I mean, I, I could be wrong about that, but uh, what? Let me ask you a question, just because we are getting near the end of the show. I mean, what does your uh, what does your wife think about the work you're doing in this realm? What's her stance on this, and, and how has this affected your relationship with her? Well, she's much more experiential than I am, actually. She's an opera singer. She has a master's degree in vocal performance and sings semi-professionally. She was in uh, La Traviato this last weekend, the small company in the Bay Area. So uh, she actually experiences things that I only think about. And I must say, I suppose I'm kind of um, uh, influenced by her thoughts because she has the, uh, the experience. She actually does remember a uh, former life or two, which I don't. That's been influential really? on me. It hasn't, hasn't proven things one way or the other, but it's got me thinking about that, thinking along those lines, especially then when I discovered that in the perennial philosophy, it's kind of a natural part and parcel of that. And so uh, there's been no negative consequences on her side in my writing this book. In fact, she's very much in favor of my thinking along these lines. She did work in a science laboratory for a number of years as an administrator, so she's also totally familiar with with the, the, the scientific perspective. She worked for a time on what's called Gravity Probe B, that being the, the Stanford Lockheed uh, NASA experiment to measure the uh, frame dragging of the, of the Earth that was predicted by general relativity. So she worked with all hmm. the Gravity Probe B scientists. So we, we, have, uh, we have an excellent marriage. It's, it's gone on for 22 years now, so we really are supportive wow. of each other. Let me ask you a question here, and that is, is there any hope, and this brings us back to, of course, what we see in the political campaigns now, where everybody is trying to show which candidate believes more in God than the other candidate. It works on both ends. You know, religious right, religious left, whatever it is, you've got to be devout. So how do we reconcile these religious initiatives with the kind of viewpoints you speak about? I'm not sure I quite understand the, the political angle there. Um, I think that as we were saying earlier, the the way to move this forward on a personal front is for people to ask themselves, is what I'm being taught by my religion sensible? Is what I'm being taught by my religion compatible with the beliefs of other people that are you know, perfectly respectable, normal people that happen to be going to a different church? Are they believing something different than I am? And if so, how can we both reconcile this with, with each other? You know, one of us must be wrong if we disagree. Maybe we're both wrong. So that's the perspective that we were talking about earlier, and how this translates into the political arena, I don't know. Um, 
uh, there's going to be a lot of, of, of pandering going on, a lot of trying to show people of a certain religion that this candidate you know, supports that one and, and not the other one. But I don't really have anything profound to say on the, the political aspects of the, of the religious conflicts or differences of opinion. It's, uh, it's, an, it's certainly something that transcends politics, and it's unfortunately being used by politics. Well, you know, the, we're, the, we're talking, for example, like, for example, we try to say, well, okay, now, after all these years, let's have intelligent design in our schools so that we don't just teach the theories of evolution. We have intelligent design. Okay, now, to me, that looks like we're trying to go back to the Dark Ages. Yeah. As I said, I don't have anything to do with intelligent design. My ideas have to do with uh, an intelligence that sort of set the universe in motion with certain laws and uh, physics and certain constants with the objective of having something happen, but the universe makes it happen, not, not God. The universe makes it happen. There is a, uh, a religious, spiritual, uh, I would say a religious political connection, I suppose. It has to do with the... Um, Sorry, the aversion that the the left wing of the political spectrum in the U.S. has had uh, with religion. That is that um, you, there's been the view that if you're going to be a progressive, rational person, then you're not going to believe in God, and therefore you don't really want to have our political party or our political wing tainted by people that believe in God and supernatural things and so on. And that's been a weakness of the of the left wing of the political spectrum in the U.S. And I, I confess, I'm, I'm part of that left wing. I'm very much a, a liberal. But uh, there's got to be a way to invite invite people into the fold that have religious beliefs that can be compatible politically with people that don't have any. And it's been something that's been taken over and hijacked, I think, by the religious right or the political right to try to capture religious votes by appealing to people's religious sense, oftentimes in kind of a, um, oh, in, in a self-serving and hypocritical way because you wind up with people supporting things based upon religious arguments that economically don't benefit them. For example, big business being benefited by, by practices put into place by politicians elected by religiously devout people who thought they were supporting someone who was good for their religion. But these are political issues that, you know, I can talk about over dinner, but I'm not really an expert in the way I am in astrophysics. Yeah. It's unfortunate yeah. that the things that we want to deal with in terms of science and engineering somehow get tainted by the religious stuff, and that's why I asked you about it. For those who are interested in getting a copy of The God Theory, they go to the normal bookstores and everything? It's in the bookstores. Uh, Amazon.com has the best price. I probably shouldn't say that because I've minimized my royalties. That's probably <laughs> the easiest way to get it is go to Amazon. Well, they probably already uh, paid a discount for it, so it's not going to hurt you any more than it would otherwise. <laughs> right. It's readily available there. And if anyone wants to get in touch with you, find out more of what you do online. Well, go to thegodtheory.com. That's the place to go to find out more about the book and about some of my ideas. Well, they're very intriguing ideas. And I know David will forgive me for veering off into the political spectrum, but I just wanted to throw that perspective out just to see, because I know that people are going to ask about that on the forums. And now you've got your answer such as we can go with it. Dr. Bernard Heisch, I find that what you have to say is extremely fascinating. Its relationship to what we perceive as paranormal phenomena also is very compelling, and we appreciate your words of wisdom on the Paracast. Thanks for coming. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Heisch. Thank you so much. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney 
is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.